Hey guys, and welcome to episode of 176 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. As you can tell, my voice is completely shot. Yeah, so we're not going to um, be doing a live show tonight, um, just because Jerry has, no, like you can hear, no <laughs> voice at all. And um, so I hope you guys understand. Um, we are, are going to pitch you up a show that we did back in February of 2018. Um, it was a good show that we got a lot of great comments on. So I hope you'll bear with us. And hopefully we'll be back uh, a little better tomorrow to do shorts. We'll have to wait and see. Jerry's tried everything under the sun to get his voice under control. And it just ain't happening. So that's... Yeah, and, be, and, and the episode you're going to hear wasn't a regular episode. It was a Patreon episode. So most of you have not heard it. Okay, good. Uh, it's on the Moonlight Murder. So it's a little more true crime, creepy true crime. So might not be one for the kiddies. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's one that you guys will rightfully enjoy. And we feel bad. This is in three and a half years through my heart surgery, through Tracy's heart attack, through deaths in the family. We've never missed an episode. <laughs> I mean, we put some of these up when we were going on vacation and stuff, but we already knew we was going to. This is the first episode that we could not actually record in three and a half years. Yeah, sorry guys, but we love you, and I know you guys will understand, and Jerry will be back to his annoying self later. Absolutely, and thanks to all of our military and civil servants. Absolutely. No matter where you are. God bless you. you all. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey guys, and welcome to the February Patreon bonus episode. Hey guys, and tomorrow's the big V-Day, big Valentine's Day. It actually won't be when they listen to this, though. Oh, damn. It'll be the day after. Oh, well, anyway, so you guys, <laughs> I hope everybody has a lovely Valentine's Day. Go get you some, kissy kissy, and all that good stuff. Yeah, and uh, then tell me what it was like. Well, you may get lucky. <laughs> You've been awful sweet lately. Mm, I try. <laughs> well, we thought we would do, um, this episode is actually going to be all true crime. Okay. It's one story, but it's a very cool story. It's actually one of my, my favorites looking back as far as just, I don't know, it's, it, it'll keep you just mesmerized as the thought process that some people go through. Oh, wow. Okay. So, this was uh, definitely one of those. But we're going to start off with an urban legend that ties in. Okay. You've all heard this story, but I will recant it for you. So a teenage boy drives his date uh, back to this little dark, deserted lover's lane for, you know, a quick makeout session. Uh-huh. He turns on the radio, get a little mood music, leans over to whisper in her ear, and he starts kissing her. Nice. Digging it. <laughs> Some minutes later, the mood was actually broken, though, when the music was suddenly stopped. Uh, and, you know, you get the, the announcer's radio announcer's voice comes on. And he starts warning about uh, a convicted murderer that's escaped from the state insane asylum. And he just happened to be, you know, the insane asylum was just located like within a couple of miles of where you are in the car. And he's urging anybody that, that notices this guy that turn him into the police now you're going to know this guy because he's got a stainless steel hook in place of his missing right hand and you should immediately report his whereabouts if you see anybody with a hook yeah that's scary so the girl obviously becomes frightened and has to be taken home the boy though he's a little more cocky literally and (laughs) he's feeling bold so he decides to you know lock the doors and 
He assures his date that nothing's going to happen. So they hear the scraping Ugh. of something on the top of their car. That makes which, my teeth hurt already. You know, he assures her it's nothing. And they continue to do what they're going to do. And then she eventually says, hey, I'm scared. I want to go home. So the boy kind of pissed off, throws the car in drive, floors it, takes off and gets home. They get to the girl's house and he gets out and, you know, opens her door. And when he goes to open the door, there's a bloody hook on the door latch where apparently this guy was getting ready to open the door when he took off. Oh, man. So we've all heard that story or variations of the story. I've heard several different ones from, Mm -hmm. you know, but this legend, urban legend, actually came from the story that we're getting ready to talk about. Oh. So that's why I thought it would be interesting to kind of start off with that. It will be. It's scary. I'm scared already. (laughs) So we've got the Texarkana Moonlight Murders is what we're going to talk about tonight. And some of you have maybe seen the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown, mm-hmm. which was actually made in 1976, or some of you might have seen the one that was just remade in 2014. Both of these movies were loosely based on actual events in Texarkana in 1946. Now, the actual crime itself was just as disturbing as anything that, that Hollywood could come up with. The Phantom Slayer, as some people called him, He kept the little bitty town of Texarkana pretty much paralyzed for a few months. Texarkana is located right on the Texas-Arkansas border, thus the name. Half of it is actually in Arkansas, and half of it is in Texas. So that makes sense. Yeah, so it's like at... It's nothing like that. Never mind. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's like that Geico commercial where the the lizard is actually in Bristol and part of Bristol's in Tennessee and part of it's in Virginia. Anyways, so the Moonlight Murders, basically, it's going to be four separate attacks. In those four attacks, five people died and three people were pretty much brutally beaten or attacked. But they survived. Yep. Some of them. Three of them did. Three of them did. Every attack was made on couples, oddly enough. And the first one actually started February 22nd, 1946. So you got two young people, Jimmy Hollis, who's 25, and Mary Jean Larry, who was 19. They're parked in a little secluded Bowie County Road, just a little bit north of um, Texarkana. It's about 10 miles Mm -hmm. from Texarkana. This man approached the car. He had a, a big flashlight. He blinded both of them. With the, the bright light yeah. from the flashlight. And he forced both of them out of the car. He had a gun, and he was wearing a white burlap sack. It could have been a white sack or it could have been burlap sack, mm-hmm. but that's what he was wearing over his head. So he actually had holes cut into the sack for his eyes so you could see through. Uh-huh. And then he had a hole cut for his mouth. Yeah. So typical, you know, kind of like a Halloween costume or something if you're going to do that. He told them that if they actually listened to him, that he wouldn't hurt them. Mm -hmm. So he told Jimmy to actually pull his pants down. And then he told uh, Mary Jean to take off running. As she takes off running, she actually hears him starting to beat Jimmy with the gun. He pretty much beat him mercilessly, and he cracked his skull in two different places. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. So Mary's running, and she actually starts running towards the wood. And then he ordered her to 
turn around and run towards the road. He then eventually ran her down and started yelling at her. He was like violent and was like, why are you running? And she's like, you told me to run. And he's like, no, I didn't. And then he starts getting mad and he starts beating her. Then he sexually assaulted her with the barrel of the gun. Oh, God. Miraculously, both of them recovered from their injuries. You're kidding. Yep. Jimmy said he thought the man was a white man with a tan in his early 30s. Mary Jean, though, said that she thought it was a light-skinned African-American. And these were the only two witnesses who would ever live that actually got a look at the Phantom. Wow. I can't believe they lived. So the next attack actually came about a month later. Richard Griffin, 29, and his date Polly uh, Ann Moore, who was 17, were parked on Rich Road. Now, one thing I noticed is everybody in this mm-hmm. thing, like, and that's the last situation. She was 17 and he was 25. Yeah, I'm just going to say there's a little bit of an age and difference there. This one, he's he's uh, like 29 and she's 17. So I mean, maybe he's pissed because he's. I don't know. He's, I guess this is just a different age where you could be 30 and date a 16 year old mm-hmm. or whatever. But anyway, so they were parked up on Rich Road. And this was a different lover's lane type area than what the mm-hmm. other one was. A passing driver actually noticed that the car was, was sitting there for a while. And they actually thought maybe the couple had fallen asleep. Yeah. So they came out and kind of checked it out. And upon further inspection, they actually saw that both had been fatally shot. <gasps> both were shot in the back of the head with a thirty-two caliber gun. There were blood stains on the ground out in front of the car, on the side of the car, that indicated that they were probably killed outside the car and put inside. Both were fully dressed. Griffin's pockets were actually inside out, where it looked like they had been looking for money. Mm-hmm. All of his money was missing, and her body had actually... Uh, been removed from the car uh-huh. before they could check to see if she was sexually assaulted. Oh. They assumed that she was, yeah. but her body was removed and taken to the uh, the funeral home before they, oh, could, they we, could actually oh, check gotcha. on it. Now, the funny thing about this one was the killer, whoever it was, like I said, he actually ordered them out of the car because like, she was laying down in the back seat mm-hmm. and he was in between the front and backseat, just kind of sitting up. He was like on his knees, almost like with his head in his hands. Uh-huh. So it was just a strange setup. That is but, weird. But like I said, they, they found a blanket on the inside of the car, and the blanket had the blood in it, and there was a blood stain outside. So it, at least one of them, they think, they think him, was shot outside on the blanket and then put back in the car with the blanket. So, oh, wow. Seems like a lot of trouble. Yeah. Well, the third attack... And we're going to get into more of these as we mm-hmm. get more detail. But the third attack actually happened on April 14th, 1946. A band by the name of the uh, Rithmares, it's a weird name, but they had just finished its regular little Saturday night gig at the uh, VFW Post at 4th and Oak. World War II had actually caused a big shortage of males in the area, so the band actually had four female members, which oh. normally wouldn't have been the case. Right. One of these was a 15-year-old saxophone player, by the name of Betty Jo Booker. Now, as the band was actually calling it a night, they grabbed all their equipment and started to head home around 1.30 a.m. 
So Betty actually got a ride from a 16-year-old uh, by the name of Paul Martin. And he was a former classmate of hers, and they were supposed to be going to a slumber party across town. Uh, where they ended up was north of Spring Lake Park, and they were the Phantom's third and fourth murders. No way. Now, Betty was actually a junior in high school and was an excellent student. She wanted to be uh, a medical technician, so she kind of had her head, you know, in, in right. the... Uh, the way of trying to make a difference in, in life. And Paul was actually the youngest of four sons. Paul had actually moved away from um, Texarkana with his family a while back. So Betty and Paul actually knew each other from when they both lived in Texar- uh, the Arkansas side of Texarkana, and they both went to grade school together. So that's how they knew each other. Now, Paul actually had moved away, and he would visit Texarkana on occasion, and that's actually why he was in town this April 14th. So authorities actually found Paul's body lying on its side on a uh, a gravel road. He had been shot four times, once in the right hand, once in the face, once in the back of his neck, and once in his back. They found Betty Jo's body fully clothed, lying face up in a wooded area. She had been shot once in the chest and once on the left side of her face. The killer used the same type of weapon, a thirty-two caliber Colt, that was used on the uh, Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore murders just three weeks earlier. Official reports later found out that Betty Jo had been raped. Oh, man. Police found Paul's 1946 uh, Ford Club Coupe parked on North Road about 40, 400 yards or 365 meters away from where the body was. Unlike the other two attacks, this attack actually yielded a suspect. So to give an idea of how much law enforcement was actually involved in this case. You had the Twin City Police Department, Arkansas State Police, the Sheriff's Department of Bowie and Miller Counties, the Texas Rangers, and the FBI were all involved in this case. So they all kind of figured it out. The guy's got the same M.O. And... Right. So Tillman Johnson was actually the chief deputy of Miller County at the time, and he became uh, one of the lead investigators and a kind of a focal point of all this thing. He said that people actually started calling about every noise that they heard at night. They were so petrified. Oh, I bet. Because this was a small town. I mean, this was not like now all of a sudden you got the first murders happen or first attacks and they think it's isolated. Mm -hmm. Then you have the the murders and it's like, oh, well, maybe that's isolated too. And now you've got this third murder that actually looks a lot like going on. So the third murder set of murders actually happened on May 3rd. Before 9 p.m., 37-year-old Virgil, Virgil Starks and his wife Katie, they were actually relaxing in their ranch-style home. They lived out at a big farm because he was a farmer and a welder. Uh-huh. And his wife, 36-year-old Katie, actually uh, came to him and brought him a, uh, um, what do you call it, a heating pad for his back because he was having some back pain. Yeah. So she brought this heating pad and uh, gave it to him. He was sitting there listening to the radio show. His favorite radio station was on, and he was reading the paper. Katie said that she actually heard something in the backyard, so she came to him and asked him to turn the radio down so they could see what was going on. At that time, she heard two gunshots. She wasn't sure that it was gunshots, though, because it came through the window and busted glass, and she thought the gunshots were just breaking glass. She just didn't know mm-hmm. why. So she comes down to um, find out what's going on, and she notices that Virgil's actually trying to stand up. And then he slumps back in his chair. He had been shot twice in the back of the head. Oh, my god! From outside. So 
Katie sees this and she automatically she runs to the phone and it's one of those crank phones, oh, right? Yeah. So she gets two cranks in and whoever had shot from the window, he shot twice again and shot her in the face. Oh. I know it. He is rude, man. She was hitting the right cheek and it exited behind her left ear. And the other one went this is gross. This, the other one went into her lower jaw, just below the lip, breaking her jaw and splintering several teeth. Oh, my God. And that just sounds painful. Yeah, that's awful. So before, oh, and, and then it got lodged under her tongue. Oh, no way. Yeah. The bullet did? Yeah. So it just gets worse. She dropped her knees, but somehow she managed to get up. She ran out and got a pistol that they had kept in the living room. But she was so blinded by all of her own blood. blood pouring into her eyes, she couldn't really see anything. What she did do, though, was she could hear the killer tearing away the screen door. Because there's, you know, had the, yeah. the screen. She could hear him turn, turn around, tearing the screen door. So she starts, you know, trying to get away, and she can barely see, and she's running this gun. She hears him come in. He starts chasing her around the house. He goes one direction, and she can hear him, so she goes a different direction. She eventually... Gets out of the house, and the whole time she's leaving a trail of blood and teeth. They said, "Oh, good lord!" She made it across the street to her sister's house, but nobody was home. Great. So then she ended up going a little bit further down the road to a neighbor's house, and there was a guy named Av Prater, and she started telling him Virgil's dead. So Prater actually shot his rifle in the air to get the attention of another neighbor by the name of Elmer Taylor. Mm-hmm. Prater had Elmer bring him his car, and then he took Katie to the hospital. Now, Katie was questioned in the ER while they were doing surgery on her, or, you know, while she was in the ER. But she never saw the killer, so she didn't know. Yeah. Now, the problem with this is he was actually shot with a twenty two caliber bullet. Oh, so it was different. It was a different bullet, but they have no reason to think that it was any different. Yeah. So they think this is the same killer. What happened here that was unique was they actually dropped a flashlight. And the newspaper actually ran a picture of the flashlight and a description and asking if anybody had seen this. No way. Because they because this was a unique flashlight, uh-huh. and there hadn't been a whole lot of them sold in the area, so they thought this might oh my give them some kind of a clue. Hopefully it was a break. Now, what's unique about this whole setup is, is how quick things escalated as far as, like, trying to catch the killer. Uh-huh. The newspaper actually would run, the police would put ads in the newspaper asking for people's help. Uh-huh. But then they would also go on to say, hey, don't start rumors. Yeah. Because if you say something, somebody else hears yeah, it, they repeat exactly. it. And, and then they were, uh, the liquor stores were actually closing at 9 o'clock because so many people were buying firearms that they did. They figured if you got drunk on whiskey and were stumbling around, oh, that yeah. you were just asking to get shot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, little things like that. They When these first crimes happened, the very first murders we talked about, it was like a $600 reward was offered. Mm-hmm. By the time Virgil got shot, that had jumped up to like $7,100. Oh, wow. Which, keep in mind, this is 1946. Oh, that's my a, God, that's, that's a, a lot, lot of money. money. Yeah, how scary for everybody back then. So... Where did we go after this? Well, Max Tackett, who was actually the Ar- an Arkansas State Trooper, but he was also a friend of Johnson that we talked about, who took the lead, he noticed something. He noticed that each time the Phantom struck, first and foremost, it was three weeks. It was th- almost three weeks to the day. Oh, no. Every time. Every one of these from the first incident where the uh, uh, Jimmy and the, yeah. and the young lady were beaten. 
to the first murder, to the second murder, to the third, it was three weeks in between each one. But more importantly, he noticed that there was always a car that was reported stolen the same night as all these attacks and murders. Oh, boy, look at him. So what he did was, he noticed that there was one car that was reported stolen at one location and later abandoned at another. That's what always was happening. Mm -hmm. So he said, okay. They eventually tracked down one of the stolen cars, and it was the last one. So they sat there and they waited. It was abandoned in the down down parking lot on June 28th of uh, 1946. So they kind of staked it out there, Mm -hmm. and they waited to see if anybody would come and get it. And lo and behold, eventually, a 21-year-old woman by the name of Peggy Swinney actually did come there. And uh, her husband, Yule Swinney, would become the prime suspect in these killings. So... When uh, so did her? Did his wife know he was doing that? Well, we'll get to that. Oh, this guy, Yul Sweeney, already had an extensive criminal background, including burglary, counterfeiting, car theft, robbery, and assault. So he wasn't your model citizen by any means. He actually attempted to sell a stolen car in Atlanta, Texas, on the same day, June twenty eighth. So now you got that stolen car, and then him trying to sell another car same day. Now the police there. They were really suspicious about him to begin with. So they followed him out of town towards Texarkana, and um, Tackett originally ended up arresting him at an Arkansas motor coach bus station in downtown Texarkana. Mm-hmm. And how they did that is they couldn't arrest him when he was in, uh, they couldn't catch up with him to arrest him when he was in this uh, Atlanta, Texas. Mm-hmm. But the cops followed him up to there. And when they met with the local cops, he said, hey, the guy we're looking for has got a really unique appearance. And um, he said, would you know him if you spot him? Why don't you go in this bus station and let's see if we can find him. And the officer is like, I don't know if I will be able to spot him. And the, the cop from, uh, from Texarkana said, no, but I guarantee he'll notice you. Mm. So they walk in there as they're walking around. They notice a guy run out the back door. Lo and behold, this is who it was. So they tracked him down. They arrested him. Thank God. So after they put him in the car and was bound for the Miller County uh, uh, courthouse, Johnson remembered Yule turning to him and said, hell, I know you guys want me for more than stealing cars. Wow. And mean, Cocky little shit, yeah, well, Meanwhile, his wife Peggy decided to, to give several detailed descriptions to police about the Booker Martin murders, which was the little girl, the saxophone player. Uh-huh. And, you know, they actually... They actually arrested somebody who tried to pawn a saxophone at, because the murder happened and they didn't find her saxophone anymore. Oh, wow. And somebody tried to pawn a saxophone, so they arrested him thinking, uh-huh. but, was it was, his... but it wasn't yeah. her saxophone, so they ended up having to release him. Uh-huh. So then they started following this. So what's her name? Uh, Peggy. <laughs> what's, what's her name? A professional. So Peggy, <laughs> Peggy actually rode with police to the murder site where Paul Martin's body was found. And she described how he shot the couple, Yule, her husband. And he was actually her boyfriend at the time. They weren't married. Oddly enough, they got married right before he was arrested. Why and would she marry him? There's a good reason. And we'll get to that, too. He always asked the perfect questions that set me up. Oh. Love it. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> more importantly, she started telling police that uh, things that only someone at the crime scene would have known. Mm-hmm. One of the things that 
pretty much directly uh, connected her and Yule to the scene was Peggy's statement about Paul Martin's date book being thrown thrown out there, and nobody knew that they were his date book was actually found in some nearby bushes, and that's exactly where she what she said it was thrown in some nearby bushes. But the only people who knew that was uh, Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley. So the fact that she knew it pretty much meant that she had to be there. Yeah. The problem is she gave four different statements. The first three were on July 23rd and 24th. But the one about the date book actually came in November 22nd. So there's quite a bit of difference there. In each one of the statements, she said she was with her boyfriend, Neil Swinney. When Booker and Martin were shot, she said that she was very specific in her description of Yule's actions. However, some of the details that, uh, especially in her involvement in the, in the crime, changed from statement to statement. So that made her kind of unreliable. Right. Now, she said that she and Yule were at his sister's house. They were discussing the murders in, in Texarkana. And she asked, I mean, who would be killing these people? And he said, someone with a brilliant mind, someone smarter than the cops. Ooh. So she apparently didn't know at yeah, that time. at that time. She said that the two of them actually drove from Dallas. They stopped at a cafe at 6.30 p.m., ate a steak dinner, went to a movie, drank a few beers at, at uh, Driver's Cafe, and then took four beers with them. That's very specific. She said they went to Spring Lake Park, and they parked near a dairy. They finished their beers, and then Yule got out to pee. She said he was gone for about an hour, and she heard two gunshots. It was almost daylight when Yule got back to the car, and he started driving out of the park at a rapid rate of speed. She said his clothes were wet up to his knees and damp up to his waist. I don't know where that comes into play, because when you get into it, it really doesn't come into play. But she said that he, she was never worried or frightened that he was gone for an hour. Well, now, wouldn't you think, what's wrong with her? She's probably passed out in the car. Probably. If somebody goes out to take a pee and they don't come back for an hour and you're not even worried. Yeah, that's crazy. So they drove to her mom's house, but only after they stopped at some nearby woods for him to change his clothes. So suspicion all over the place. He then drove through a pasture and into a wooded area to hide the car. In some other statements, she said that he told her he was going out to the park to rob somebody, not to take a pee. In her July 23rd statement, she said he got out of the car after they uh, drove past Paul Martin's car. So they seen his car, drive mm-hmm. past it, and then they parked up ahead and walked back uh, to the car. And they went to the driver's side. Yule told um, both of them to get out. He pointed the gun at Paul and told the, uh, the couple to give him everything they had, money-wise. Betty Jo Booker and Peggy both um, screamed and basically begged him not to shoot anybody. Yeah. And Yule told Peggy to search the couple, and she refused. And he got mad at her, so he shot Martin twice and told Peggy to hold Booker while he went to get his uh, car that he had parked up the road because he wanted to park it behind Martin's car. So he ordered both of the girls into the car. He drove west and then doubled back because he noticed that Paul Martin was moving off the road, had got up and moved. So he doubled back so he could shoot him twice more. Oh, Jesus. To make sure that he killed him. Oh, my gosh. So they drove a bit. They stopped. This is horrifying. <laughs> he took Booker in the woods and shot her. And this time he had told Peggy to wait into the car. He actually came back to the car without the girl. 
He told Peggy that he actually tried to get some, but she refused, so he shot her. Remember that, anybody listening, and it's, think, and it's uh, Valentine's Day. Mm. So, I mean, why, why would she, was she not scared for her own self, or she just thought he wouldn't do anything so to I'm her? I'm sure she's probably a wacko. So, while she was running his mouth, or her mouth, obviously, uh, Yule wouldn't say anything. Mm-hmm. He was being pretty much quiet like he should be when you're arrested. So, police took him uh, to Little Rock, Arkansas, for a shot of sodium pentothal. Oh, and they gave him too much, and he passed out. So for those of you who are younger and listening, sodium pentothal is truth serum. So it's supposed to make you tell the truth. And right. for the most part, it works pretty well. I don't know why they don't use it more. Well, I don't know why they gave him too much. Don't they know how to do this by now? I don't know. But Johnson actually said that uh, that mistake should have never happened. And he actually believed that if uh, they had kept him in Texarkana and just kept questioning him, that he would have cracked and eventually told the truth. Yeah. So Yule's wife refused to testify in court, and she couldn't be made to under state law. Because they were married. Because they were married, and they got married right before he was arrested. Oh. So how convenient. Mm Mm-hmm. So Peggy, you know, she's got all these these little stories and quirks and stuff like that. And here's some interesting little tidbits. This is the things that actually helped the case, that made them think that they really had something going. So first and foremost— Peggy was arrested in a stolen car the night of the uh, the Griffin murder, right? Mm-hmm. So she's in a stolen car, and they'd already seen that that had happened three different times. When Peggy had taken him to the murder site, and she said that back in the woods is where that had happened, they had actually found a woman's high heel print back there in the woods. So there was a print at the murder scene and she had said she had been back there. So that would make sense that there probably was a woman back there during that time. The lawyer actually told Peggy that, uh, uh, Yule was being held for murder and she asked how they found out. Mm-hmm. So that would lead to believe that yeah, that's that probably he, what happened. Yeah. Well, she more or less just admitted it. Right. And then, uh, police found actually a khaki work shirt. That had Stark, S T A R K, which you remember the one guy that was killed was Starks. Oh yeah. And but they found a shirt that had S T A R K that was you could only see with a black light. Ah. And he had this in his possession. Slag, how funny is that? We just talked about slag at the. That jerk off. Slag is actually like uh, part of like metal, like a, a solder or something like oh, that, uh-huh. little remnants, and that would be something you would find on a welder. There was actually um, found in the shirt pocket that he had that matched the slag that was at the welder shop that he oh, worked at. See? So that pretty he much ain't so up. smart after all, is he? So he was accused of, of being a murderer, obviously, and he never professed his innocence. At any point in time did he ever say, I'm innocent. He didn't say he was guilty, mm-hmm. but he didn't put up much of a fight. He actually uh, he always used to own a thirty-two uh, caliber coat, which was just like used in the weapons or the the shootings. But it was actually sold in a, in a or lost in a craps game, one of the two. Yeah. Sometime after the fact, and he asked at one point in time. Remember, I told you that he was he asked uh, in the car about you guys want me more for for more than stealing cars. Yeah. Because when he got in there and was talking to Johnson. He said, do you think I'll get the chair? Oh, dang. And he said, I mean, 
No, I mean, probably, you know, at most 10 or 15 years, I mean, they don't give people the chair for stealing cars. Mm -hmm. And that's when he said, oh, you guys want me for more than stealing cars. Right. So all that looks pretty convincing that he would be the murderer. But the problem is that Yule's fingerprints were never found at any of the scenes, including uh, Booker and Martin's crime scene. Get out of here. Texas Rangers or Sheriff uh, uh, Presley, they both had their doubts that he was the murderer, even though all this was there. Did that heifer do it? Well, he denied being the phantom, and all the cops figured out, or they deduced, I don't know if they actually figured it out, but what they came up with was that they thought Peggy and Yule were actually sleeping in a car under a bridge in San Antonio when the Booker murder took place, so there's no way they could have done it. And here's the other thing that throws it for a loop. In 1999 and 2000, this could have just been a wacko or somebody that's being a jerk, but in both of those years, somebody sent family members apology letters for what their father had done to their family, and Yule never had a daughter. Well, says... So nobody knows who did it then? No, it's all, an period. unsolved murder to this day. Oh, my gosh. But why would he say that? Why would he say that stuff? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. That took a daggone turn. Yeah. I mean, and then uh, the other thing was um, they actually found her saxophone. They did? Yeah. It was It was later. Like, it was months later. But somebody was actually getting ready to put up a fence or something, and they found her saxophone. Uh, so that it it was there all the time, just nobody saw it. And the bottom of the case had already started, had it rotted out, where it had been sitting there in the weather and that all that stuff. That is crazy. So, yeah, there was all kinds of little things. I that, mean, I cannot believe that they still don't know who did this. Well, most people still think that it was him, just because of the fact that all the all the things that added up. Yeah, is he dead? Oh, yeah, 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 and she died in, I think, 2004, or, it wasn't too, too long ago, but Peggy died, but she was younger than him anyway, because she was only 21 at the yeah. time. Yeah. Wow, that is a messed up story. I know it. So, and have you ever seen the movie? I don't, I feel like I have, but I don't, I can't remember if I, if I it did, it was like years ago. Well, see, the movie is actually, um... It, like I said, it's loosely based on mm-hmm. it. Like, for example, you've got the girl who um, had the saxophone. She played the saxophone, right? And he just shot her and killed her. But in the movie, they it's a trombone. Mm-hmm. And what he does is he puts a knife. He ties her to like a tree. And he puts a knife at the end of the trombone. And as he's going back and forth, you know, with the slide <gasps> on the trombone. It's stabbing it's her? stabbing her in the back as he's playing. You know, so, I mean, they kind of took... But he wears the mask and all that stuff like it. But Wow, what a sicko. And they, you know, that town, they, every year they have a town that dreaded sundown festival where they play it like on a, like a drive-in type park and, oh and all these people show up for it. It's like a big deal. Why would they do that? I don't Why know. would they want to relive that? Well, that's the whole thing. It's a, mainly a lot of young people that had nothing yeah, to do with it back then, it. but the people who were involved with it. You know, or had family members that were involved think it's highly disrespectful. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's messed up. 
So that's the story of the uh, true story behind the town that dreaded sundown. Oh my gosh, that's that's so creepy. I would hate it to live back then, just never knowing. And you know the guy who did that's the same guy who did the Legend of Bogey Creek. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. So I thought it was pretty interesting. I mean, that is very interesting. I mean, like I say, that took a whole other turn at the end. I was not expecting that. Yeah, and there's a, I mean, like I said, she's spilling her guts, but then she refused to testify. And she mm-hmm. legally, she didn't have to testify. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and, I, you know, they really wouldn't, I don't think it even went to, really to court. Because there's no, there's all kinds of details about all the murders, but there's really nothing about any court proceedings. So I don't know if they even had enough to even pin it on him. See, and that's so terrible for the families because they never got closure. No. Or justice. So spooky. Uh-huh. Very, uh, somebody is disgusting. Yeah, for and, sure. And, you know, the uh, the fish guy, Albert Fish. That's a story on its own. I know it's not connected to this, but that's the guy who um, was a cannibal and all that back in the late, um, well, I guess it's late 1800s all the way up to, I think he, he was he got the death chair, a death penalty, I think in 1926 or something like that. He was the oldest man at the time mm. to ever get the death penalty. But that guy, he killed so many kids. He was a pedophile. He was, oh my God. That's a story that we should do at some point in time because you can't just gloss over it. I mean, he actually killed a 10-year-old kid and ate her and sent the parents a letter talking about how delicious she was. Oh, jeez. I don't know if I can be in on that story. It's pretty disgusting. Well, you might have to do that one by yourself because <laughs> I'll be boo-hooing it all over the place. Yeah, it's it's pretty. Oh, my gosh. This, man, what are people's minds are crazy. So, anyway, that's uh, that's the story we had on the Moonlight Murders. We hope that you guys enjoyed it. Actually, it's kind of sick that if you did enjoy it, but I mean. Well, yeah. <laughs> and we, you could say, oh my God, I hated that story and that'd be totally cool. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. So let me ask you this. I noticed that on in the Facebook group, a lot of people uh, the other day were talking about Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, we've got Steve Cole, who is actually a Bigfoot expert. We got to meet him at uh, Scarefest. Uh-huh. He's on Destination America. And he's going to come on sometime and talk to us about uh, all kinds of various things. And he's he's pretty passionate about Bigfoot. So uh, he doesn't take kindly to people saying they don't believe. Or uh-huh. uh, the, the funniest thing was we went out back and was talking. And I've heard people say before that they think that Bigfoot could be an alien. That's why we don't find any bones or anything like that uh-huh. because they're not from here, so they don't live and die here. They just come down and we see them, and right. then they go back up. Wow, he got so excited about <laughs> trying to say, well, I can't believe somebody would even. Th- I mean, it was so funny to hear him get into it. Uh-huh. So I'm going to have him come on and talk about it. But did you realize that there is a town, and, I, and man, I can't remember, I want to say it's Scottsville or scottsburg or something i'll have to look it up but this town or county in kentucky is getting ready to have a bigfoot festival because they have more bigfoot sightings in that county than anywhere else in the united states yeah i did hear that actually but it makes you wonder i mean i think we talked about it before how you said there there, there has to be more than one. Oh yeah bigfoot, yeah I mean, because i mean how long can a bigfoot live for god's sake I don't know how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck. <laughs> so, I mean, do you, are you behind, I mean, do you think 
there are Bigfoots or is it Big Feet? Bigfoots? It's not Big Feet. I don't think. It <laughs> don't even sound right. It could be. I saw seven Big Feet. Um, I mean, I guess anything's possible. I'm not saying I don't believe it. It's just, I mean, anything's possible in this world. Well, I know when I was talking to him about why they don't find bones and stuff, he was talking about their the just natural decomposition other than their animals mm-hmm. animals eat bones some animals that they do so you know they'll you know they could just be savaged out there by all these other animals so that's why you don't find the bones oh they don't well. lay around very long to yeah so just sit there and be undisturbed yeah that's true so i don't know i mean i, I guess we uh i guess we need to do more bigfoot stuff but I, it got me looking and i actually found a bunch of stories here in kentucky and some of them actually not too far from where we live, like within like a 20, 30 minute area. Oh, yeah. Area. Well, we need to go There was a check bunch of a Bigfoot sightings and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. They just don't excite me. Bigfoots don't excite you? No. I don't have a Bigfoot fetish. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I don't know, babe. I think it's just one of those things. If you see it, then you believe it. And I once guess. again, it's like the whole aliens thing. And we're going to get, uh, I need to get uh, Chris Christopherson on. Oh, wait. No, that's Rob Christopherson. Oh, that's good. Well, say, what are you, how are you never going to get him on here? Yeah, he's. Well, I better hurry up. He's getting up there. Oh, I know it. But Rob Christopherson, he's like the UFO guy. He's, uh-huh. uh, we played the, his his show, Our Strange Skies, um, is one of the ones we promoted the other day. But that dude knows everything and anything about UFOs. Uh-huh. And what I like is, like, if you listen to his first couple of shows, he doesn't talk about necessarily encounters, per se, but he talks about, like, what a UFO encounter is, like, what the first encounter is. Because you always hear about, like, uh, was it close encounters of the mm-hmm. third kind? or But he talks about what a close encounter of the first kind is and what a second kind. He breaks them down. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about, oh, Roswell. or It's, not, it's all these different aspects of wow. UFOs and terminology and stuff yeah. like that. So it is actually pretty cool because mm-hmm. I heard some stuff on there that I'd never even... Oh, yeah. Thought I didn't even know I, I didn't even know I had a question about it until I heard it and I was like, you know, I have kind of wondered that. Uh-huh. But I wouldn't have thought about it if right, someone asked me. Right. But I'm going to get him on one night because we have a lot of people that still ask about UFO stuff. and mm-hmm. As I've mentioned a thousand times, UFOs and Bigfoot are probably my two least favorite subjects to carry or cover so i have a tendency to just not mm-hmm. um i think it'd stories. be awesome to see dag on alien well i mean i'm sure it would be i mean you know i mean I, I guess because i just i don't know I, I it's stupid for me to say this because it's like i say well it doesn't fascinate me because i believe that bigfoot is out there and i believe that aliens are out there so it's no big deal but at the same time, I believe in ghosts, but it's a big deal to do all the ghost stuff. Yeah. See, so it's I mean, really contradictory for me right, to even say that. Right, it is, that. exactly. Yeah. And it's unlike me to contradict myself. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> Guys, we greatly appreciate you listening to the show. We always appreciate your patronage. And uh, every time we look at, at the uh, the Patreon page, it's always more and more of you guys there. So Yeah, that's so amazing. I didn't think we were ever going to hit 100, and now we're close to 110 we're like 105 106 no that's great so, you guys are so sweet yep so thank you work hard for your money and if you're going to give any of it to us just because you like what we do that's the ultimate compliment it sure so. is the i mean it's very humbling if you guys uh, not people don't write a whole lot on the patreon page 
you know, we post the shows on there and then we'll post some pictures and stuff on there on occasion. But uh, it's not really like a Facebook or something mm-hmm. where, you know, you can. I mean, people can write you back and forth, but eh, it didn't really, hadn't really caught on with a lot of people, I don't uh-huh. think. So I don't see a lot of activity in there. But if you guys have any topics that you'd like to see us do, especially if it's true crime or um, something like that, just send us a message and we'll look into it and if it's something we could do for a patreon show we want to do we especially want to do the stories you guys want to hear yeah absolutely so if you got Bring it something on. yeah if you got something you got throw it to us and we'll see what we can do so sounds good well you guys have a good how uh valentine's day ninja said hi and uh <laughs> just hope y'all enjoy your loved ones and we'll be talking to y'all soon absolutely see you guys